Welcome to Lovers Forever. When we last left off, Frank had finally convinced Nancy to grant him a divorce. But if you think it will be smooth sailing for him and Ava, you haven't been paying attention. By the summer of 1951, the press attention toward the couple was getting out of control. This is because they were now Hollywood's reigning power couple, even if most of that power lay with Ava and not Frank. He returned to New York shortly thereafter for a one-week engagement at the Latin Quarter. He was beaming with happiness on stage. That happiness mostly evaporated, though, when he reported to work on his next movie in July. Meet Danny Wilson is loosely based on a character quite like Sinatra, a hot-headed nightclub singer who punches a cop and ends up in jail, and then has to work at a nightclub owned by a mobster. Said mobster demands half of Danny's earnings, both past and future. And there's a love quadrangle of sorts between Danny, his best friend Mike, the mobster, and another nightclub singer named Joy, played by Shelley Winters. Winters and Sinatra did not get along. When he sent her a note asking to rehearse together in the dressing room, she interpreted it as a come-on and sent an indignant note back. It most likely was not a come-on, but her refusal nevertheless irritated Frank. From there, the mutual hostility only escalated. They were both prickly personalities. There was a lot riding on this movie for Shelley, who was a rising star, so she worked hard at the role. But Frank was, perhaps understandably, quite distracted between arranging the divorce with Nancy, his children visiting him on set accompanied by priests and psychiatrists, his obsession with Ava, and his radio show getting shut down. Toward the end of filming, Shelley Winters hit Frank in the midst of a shouting argument. In her memoir, Shelley says that, quote, Contrary to other Italians I have known since, he didn't hit me back. I guess I was lucky. He just slammed into his limousine and roared away. End quote. Then Winters cattily assumes he went home to hit Ava instead. Honestly, Frank himself was difficult to deal with. But I understand why Frank didn't like Shelley Winters all that much. Implying that all Italian men are violent is also racist as hell. Improbably, Meet Danny Wilson earned good reviews and did okay at the box office. In early August, Frank and Ava went on what they hoped would be a secret holiday in Acapulco, Mexico. But reporters and photographers found them anyway, taking off at the LA airport with an insane number of suitcases. Speculation quickly grew. Maybe they were heading to Mexico for a quickie divorce and remarriage. Photographers swarmed the stairs that had been pulled up to the airplane, and Frank came out to yell at them. You shouldn't act that way, Frankie, a photographer said. The press made you what you are. The press didn't make me. It was my singing, you miserable crumbs. They were not going to Mexico to get married. It really was just a vacation. Their host was a Mexican millionaire named Jorge Pascual. Pascual also set them up with a bodyguard, who, incidentally, had himself a rather long murder record. 
outside of a club called the Beachcomber, said bodyguard, threatened to put a bullet in a photographer if he didn't hand over his camera. The police were called, and they handed Frank the camera, who opened it and tore out the film while Ava wept. Frank fed off the press attention, no matter how many of them he yelled at. But on the rare occasions they were actually alone, Ava cried to Frank about the press sometimes. Movie star though she may have been, there was that fundamental insecurity. Of course, they could have chosen a lower-profile town in which to vacation. But Frank didn't really want to disappear. And so, they clashed with photographers. The press attention was hurting the relationship. How can you develop or strengthen a bond with someone when so many strangers are constantly watching you and taking your photograph? When the lovers flew back to L.A., they did so on Jorge Pasquale's converted military plane. The hope was that avoiding a commercial flight would bamboozle the press. But it took so long getting their dozens of suitcases through customs that the press found them anyway. Ava recalled a horde of photographers, but a reporter who was there said there were about five or six people in total. On the way out of the airport, Frank was driving a Cadillac toward the exit gate when a photographer named William Eccles tried to take their picture. Frank swerved directly at him, the car bumper grazing the man's legs. Sinatra yelled out the open window, The next time I'll kill you! Ava's biographer claims that because nearly three months had passed and Nancy herself hadn't filed suit, Ava gave Frank an ultimatum. They had to work this out, or it wasn't meant to be. They say you should never give a man an ultimatum, but perhaps you can if you're Ava Gardner, because Frank asked Nancy if he could file for divorce in Nevada himself, and she said yes. Nevada, quite famously, only required six weeks residency before a person could file for divorce, so it would accelerate the whole process. Frank got gigs at the Riverside Hotel in Reno, and at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. After his brouhaha in Mexico, Frank played nice with the press when he arrived in Reno on the 9th of August. He invited them to come back to his suite and ask any questions they wanted. This is what I mean when I say that Frank fed off the press attention. There's also no doubt it was a strategic move. He needed good press. So when a reporter asked him what had happened in Mexico, he claimed it was grossly exaggerated. I got sore, he said, because I got some pretty rough handling from a couple of guys. They were the exception to the rule, though, for the press has done a lot for me. Only a week ago, he'd been yelling at a reporter who'd reminded him of just that fact. Ava flew up to join him some days later. They were staying at the Calneva on the north shore of Lake Tahoe, sharing a chalet with Hank Sanicola and his wife. For some reason, Frank decided that now was the time to grow a wispy little mustache. Ava told him it made him look terrible, and she was not wrong. They spent their time as they always did, with the added pastimes of gambling and boating on the lake. One night at dinner, Frank asked Ava about the bullfighter, meaning Mario Cabre. Had she slept with him? She changed the subject. Over coffee, he asked again. 
She asked him why he was trying to fuck everything up. Later, in bed, Frank asked a third time. Ava lit a cigarette, saying nothing. Frank assured her that it didn't matter. It was no big deal. He just wanted to know. Just tell me the truth, he said, and we'll forget all about it. And so she told him the truth, or at least a version of it. Once, she admitted, it had happened. She was drunk and didn't remember it. Once, Frank repeated. Once. The next day, Hank Santacola rented them a beautiful new boat so Frank and Ava could have a cruise. Ava's maid, Rini, came along, bringing sandwiches and champagne. I haven't talked much about Rini yet, but she was as much Ava's companion and best friend as her maid. Anyway, both Frank and Ava had been drinking champagne. A lot of it. Frank said to Ava, I suppose you wish you were out here with Howard Hughes. Why the fuck should I wish I was out here with Howard Hughes? I bet he's got a bigger boat than this, doesn't he? That guy's got enough bucks to buy ten boats the size of this one. I don't care if he owns the fucking Queen Mary. I'm not sorry I'm not with him, so shut up. Don't tell me to shut up. And so it went. The argument distracted Hank Santacola, who was piloting the boat. And he ran the boat aground a hundred feet from shore, tearing a hole in the bottom. Hank got Rini off the boat and then himself. They waded to shore, and Frank quickly followed. Get off the fucking boat while there's still time, you fucking fool, Frank yelled at Ava, who replied, Oh, go fuck yourself. I'm staying here. Then she went down below decks to discover that the boat's owners had stocked an enormous amount of toilet paper. So she started throwing rolls of toilet paper at Frank. His rage, according to Ava in her memoir, quote, was now off the charts, and he screamed a variety of curses in my direction that even I found impressive. But nothing he said deterred me from my appointed rounds, end quote. Eventually, the boat started to sink for real, and Ava came to shore, carrying the last bottle of champagne and two glasses. She says that she and Frank laughed about the whole thing and made up. Fewer things are as funny to me as the image of Ava Gardner pelting Frank Sinatra with rolls of toilet paper from the prow of a sinking ship. But it's also not hard to read the story as a portent of doom, a tableau rich with symbolism for the couple's eventual trajectory. A few days after that, Frank made an offhand comment that hurt Ava so much she didn't even argue back. She just ran towards the lake at night at her bare feet. Even though she was quite drunk, she managed to navigate the steep slope and the thick trees without injuring herself. Then she heard footsteps behind her. It was Rini. They stopped and looked at each other for a while, saying nothing, until Rini said, Come on, Miss G. Knock it off. Why don't we just go home? And so they did. They packed their bags and drove all the way back to Los Angeles, passing a bottle of bourbon back and forth to keep off the chill. Ava was despairing. She'd gone up to Reno believing she was one step closer to marrying the man she loved. 
But now she was leaving him, probably losing him for good. As soon as they arrived in Los Angeles, the phone rang. The sun was coming up over the ocean, and Hank Santacola was shouting into the phone, Ava, hurry back. Frank's just had an overdose. And Ava did hurry back, but this time she and Rini took a plane. When she went into the bedroom, Frank looked up at her from the bed. I thought you'd gone, he said by way of explanation. Ava was angry. She felt that Frank had tricked her yet again. But she forgave him quickly enough. She loved him after all. This suicide attempt would not be as easy to cover up as just moving a mattress down the hall, because when Hank Santacola called a doctor for Frank, that doctor was obliged to file a police report. Soon, the newspapers caught wind of the story. I did not try to commit suicide, Frank said to a room full of reporters with Ava at his side. I just had a bellyache. What will you guys think of next to write about me? The reporters did not think this was a satisfactory explanation. They had him elaborate. This is what he said. Ava was returning to Hollywood that night. We came back to the lake and I didn't feel so good. So I took two sleeping pills. Miss Gardner left. I guess I wasn't thinking because I am very allergic to sleeping pills. Also, I had drunk two or three brandies. I broke out in a rash. The pills felt kind of stuck in my chest. I got worried and called a friend who runs the steakhouse here. He sent a doctor who gave me a glass of warm water with salt in it. It made me throw up and I was all right. That's all there was to it. Honest. Likely story. Soon... Frank, Ava, and company decamped for the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. Las Vegas was, at that time, very segregated. Rini, a black woman, wasn't even allowed to come into the lobby or sit by the pool with Ava. She was supposed to sleep in a shabby apartment building around the back. This was how much of America functioned in 1951, and Rini was resigned to it, but this time it made her cry. Throughout Rini's employment, Ava had utilized her star power multiple times to protect Rini from this kind of discrimination. But that didn't work here. So Ava called her sister Bappy, who came from L.A., to escort Rini home. Frank's shows were sold out, and he ended up discovering the pianist, who would become his greatest accompanist, Bill Miller. But the property settlement with Nancy was turning out to be a fucking nightmare. She had decided to proceed with the California divorce after all to better protect her children. He had no future bookings, and all the money he had earned in Nevada went straight to Nancy, who claimed he owed her over $40,000 in back alimony. His law firm was suing him for $12,000 in legal fees. They also slapped a lien on his office building and his house in Palm Springs. Then his TV show lost its biggest sponsor. He ended up borrowing the twelve grand he owed his lawyers from Ava, who in turn had borrowed it from her agent. He signed a new property settlement with Nancy, 
and on October 15th, Nancy formally filed for divorce. Two weeks later, she appeared at the courthouse in Santa Monica to receive her interlocutory decree of a divorce. On November 1st, Ava and Frank took the train from New York to Philadelphia to apply for a marriage license. Of course, the press found out almost instantly, but during the 72-hour waiting period, Ava nearly called the whole thing off. They were back in New York and had just been out clubbing with the James Masons. When they returned to the Hampshire house, a letter was delivered to Ava. The letter was from a sex worker who claimed to have had several meetings with Frank. And Ava knew she was telling the truth. There were details about Frank's anatomy and what he liked in bed that only someone who'd been with him would have known. The writer of the letter congratulated Ava on Frank's extraordinary endowment, but also expressed pity because her husband-to-be needed to pay for sex. Ava went over to the window in a coldly automatic way and threw it open. She perched on the ledge. Her sister, Bappy, thought she was going to jump. Instead, she took off her engagement ring and threw it into the street. Then she went into her bedroom and locked the door. Much back and forth between the parties ensued, with Bappy and Manny Sachs and Hank Zanacola and Dick Jones all taking turns yelling, convincing, and arguing. Frank's representatives told Ava that no one could cancel a wedding at this late of a date. The flowers, the minister, the catering, the cake. It was all prepared. It was too late. Ava retorted that she was just as important a part of the wedding as the damn cake, and she could damn well cancel it. But eventually, she came around and agreed to go forward with the wedding. The question I've always had is, why? As far as we know, this is the first form of truly incontrovertible proof Ava ever had that Frank wasn't faithful to her. She had been paranoid about it the whole time they'd been together, as he had been about her, and now she knew that her suspicions had been correct. Calling the wedding off would have been the reasonable thing to do. And also, Frank didn't apologize, as far as we know. He almost never apologized to anyone. But she must have believed that Frank was her destiny, or she must have loved him enough to accept this painful humiliation, like Nancy had loved him. Later in life, in her memoir, Ava blamed the whole thing on, you guessed it, Howard Hughes. She thought that Hughes must have arranged for the letter to be sent at just that moment. Hughes was still surveilling her, and it's possible he was involved. But I think it's just as likely that if you're a man about to be married who is still sleeping with sex workers... That'll catch up with you. The truth, as the saying goes, will out. And so now, at long last, we come to the rainy morning of November 7th. The lovers left the Hampshire house, holding hands. They appeared deliriously happy. They were sober. They were sober. 
The wedding location was changed at the last minute to throw off the scent. They were now headed to Manny Sachs's brother Lester's house in West Germantown, Pennsylvania. But the press found them anyway, tipped off by the catering firm that Lester Sachs had hired for the occasion. Frank was so mad at the photographers that as soon as he got out of the car, he started screaming at them. Ava grabbed his hand and pulled him inside, where he continued to shout at the photographers from an upstairs window. There were only 20 guests at the wedding, most all of them friends of Frank's. Hank Senecola was there, and Axel Stordahl, and Frank's parents. Ava's only guest was her sister, Bappy, who had also been present at her weddings to Mickey Rooney and Artie Shaw. Eventually, Frank calmed down enough to go on with the ceremony. Pianist Dick Jones started drumming out Mendelssohn's wedding march on the grand piano in the living room, but he discovered that the piano hadn't been tuned in forever and sounded awful. So he switched to Here Comes the Bride. Manny Sachs walked Ava down the stairs, but he tripped, and they slipped three steps. Ava wore a mauve cocktail dress. Frank wore a dark blue suit and gray tie. The ceremony, led by the police court judge, was short. They said their vows and gave each other the platinum rings. Then Frank said to the room, Well, we made it. We finally made it. Ava went over to Dolly Sinatra, her new mother-in-law, and embraced her. Dolly burst into tears. Usually a very talkative woman, she was unable to come up with anything to say. There were champagne toasts and the traditional spectacle of the wife feeding her husband a slice of cake. What's striking about photos of the couple on their wedding day is how genuinely, euphorically happy they seem. Frank in particular looks like he swallowed a light bulb while Ava gazes at him with heavenly serenity. Against all odds, against all the obstacles placed in their way by Nancy, by the press, by maybe Howard Hughes, and by each other, they had made it to the altar. They had done what had seemed for many months to be impossible. Perhaps they believed, as so many couples do, that marriage would serve as a miracle cure for the problems of their relationship. That once they made it official, they could be true to each other. That it would change. Be the way it was in the beginning. After all, they had just proven their commitment to each other. Surely the arguments about the strength of that commitment would subside now. Surely the solemnity, the legality, the heaviness of their vows would keep them in lockstep with each other, like the gravitational pull between the earth and the moon. At some point that afternoon, Ava went upstairs to change into a brown Christian Dior travel suit. When she came back downstairs, Manny Sachs, one of Frank's oldest friends, pulled her aside. Manny had an air of seriousness and intensity about him. 
One person who knew him said his contemplative nature made him look like a rabbi. He told her, Look after him, Ava. He's had some hard knocks, and he's very fragile. It isn't going to be easy living with a man whose career is in a slump. I'll do anything to make him happy, said Ava. Then help him get back his self-confidence, said Manny. She and Frank left from the back door of the house in a green convertible headed straight for the airport where they directly boarded a chartered twin-engine Beechcraft plane and flew away. The next place they were seen was at the Miami airport running to another waiting convertible. They were running as fast as their feet would take them. Thanks for listening to Lovers Forever. This episode was written, narrated, recorded, and edited by me, Amber Nelson. Our logo is designed by Abby Scheel. All our music comes from Epidemic Sound. We're distributed by Buzzsprout. If you like the show, please follow, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on social media at Lovers Forever Podcast on Instagram.